Revelation from the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and, to, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so begins the book of Revelation. And we begin... Uh, a series this uh, week, a seven-week series working through the book of Revelation. Um, and because we're only doing seven weeks on Sunday sermons, we are skimming through some stuff. This is, not, uh, this is going to be flirting with Bible college lectures, but it's just, we're just, we are not going to be working through this uh, verse by verse or anything like that. We're going to be jumping into some key uh, themes. And uh, the reality is that uh, I will be shooting from the hip a lot less Lord, let it be. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're going to, I'm going to be relying on my lo- notes a lot more. The ceremonial raising of the lectern <laughs> has now commenced. <laughs> a little too high. Uh, so we've never shied from tricky subjects here at Bay Vineyard. We've talked about abortion and we've talked about politics and we've talked about COVID and we've talked about money. Uh, and so we're, one of our values as a church is depth. We want to go to the deeper places and, and really wrestle with the stuff that people are thinking about and engaging with. And so all of those things that I've just mentioned, you can track through our previous uh, sermon podcasts and see that stuff. Uh, and so what we're going to do for this series is that we're going to, um, we are going to go a little bit more lecture, um, but God is, is going to speak through it. And what I love about this church um, is that the series we do that are like on the Holy Spirit, you know, and it's like short talks, come Holy Spirit, let's see what happens, you know. And we started the year like that, which is so cool. Um, but also we're going to change gears now and we're going to uh, dive into a book of the Bible and we're going to work through it. And we're going to work through it quite thoroughly and quite deeply. Um, and uh, this will be a lot more teachy, but we will swing back to shake and bake or whatever. Um, I don't know when, just as the Spirit leads. And that should be normal in churches where it's not just one or the other, we, we love it all. And we meet God through it all. It's a very impoverished theology if you think you only meet God in the shake and bake, or if you only meet God in the academic space. It's all, he's, all in it, he's in all of it. And he calls us to love us with the, all of our hearts and minds and souls and strength, like all that we are, that we would engage with him. Revelation, however, is the most demanding of all the biblical books to read and understand. And a big part of that is because it's written in a style that was well known to the first readers but really foreign to us. Uh, and so to engage with it, we're going to have to, as I say, uh, do a little bit more of a lecture than an inspirational talk. And friends, I've worked very hard on this. I've probably uh, worked as hard as I've ever, Jen will know, in terms of our married life, definitely as hard as I've ever worked on a series. I've been mean, a long time working on this stuff. So I've worked hard and I'd appreciate it if you listened hard. Okay. <laughs> Um, because at the end of the day, some of you guys will love this. I know, like some of you guys, your legs are already twitching. It's like, hell yeah, let's go deep. Let's get the academics out. Let's get Greek going. Let's work out, you know. And then some of you guys are already like, oh no. And especially the number of visitors today, oh no, we've turned up at the start of, see you later, Bay Vineyard. You know, nice visiting, but you know, no thanks. Fine, whatever. Um, but especially to those that call this church home, um, I'm just... It's important we do this sort of stuff on biblical texts. Like, uh, not everything that's good for us is necessarily easy, light, fun, and entertaining. Most things that are good for us generally are challenging and demanding and require some sort of effort. And engaging with this book is definitely that. So why are we doing this? Um, A whole lot of thinking has evolved in the last couple of hundred years of church history that have really informed people's views on the book of Revelation. Most Christians I talk to haven't done a lot of work on it, 
but they've inherited a bunch of default worldviews and assumptions around what the book of Revelation is all about. Now, honestly, this fascination, particularly with things like the rapture and the Antichrist and one world government and mapping out the events of the world to line up with the end times that are in the Bible, whatever, all of that stuff that seems to grip people's attention as Christians, I just didn't grow up in a space where that was happening. I grew up in an Anglican church where they did not get fizzed on some of the stuff I've just listed. It just wasn't my world. And then I went to Bible college and got introduced to um, New Testament scholarship that has served me so well in the last 20 years of, of ministry, and particularly the work of, I think, the finest New Testament scholar alive today, N.T. Wright, whose work on eschatology, so that's end times, has totally shaped my worldview, and it's been just so helpful. Um, and so that's kind of been the waters I've swum in. But then, like, every time something tricky happened for Westerners, you know, it's so like the Christchurch earthquakes or COVID, I just keep bumping into all this other stuff, rapture and one world government and they, you know the, the mark of the beast and I was like so I just kept bumping and, I was, and then the more I've kind of just been poking my nose into people's business I'm like oh this is actually a lot more common than I realised so uh, I invited my friend Dr Joseph McCauley who did grow up in the Pentecostal stream and swum in these waters to really help me understand if we can go to the next slide um, Ramon, to really help me understand what's shaped our current thinking about Revelation. And he shares that, now the, all this next bit is Joseph McCauley, okay? And so I wanna start with this and then we're gonna talk about how we're gonna approach getting into the book of Revelation. So it's kind of predominantly an intro series talk and then we're gonna do a little bit of textual stuff at the end. So, so Joseph writes this, he says this, we were taught that Revelation teaches that in the future there will be severe famines, wars, earthquakes, and an antichrist will take over the world with the one world government, with one economy, a false religion. And the antichrist will then deceive the mass of humanity to following him, chop off the heads of those that don't get the mark, the mark of the beast. God will then pour out his wrath and burn up a third of the world, inflicting pain upon humanity over a seven-year period. The church will go through a massive falling away before the tribulation, the abandoning of the truth." Okay, so okay, <laughs> that's what Joseph grew up in. Some of that may you may resonate with, and be like, oh yeah, that's kind of what I grew up with. Some of you may be, and again, there'll be a whole bunch of you like, whoa, okay. Especially new Christians are going to be like, really? Okay. So Joseph McCauley then goes on to do some study. He's now got his PhD. And as he does the study, he realized that the underlying assumptions of all that I just read out are largely unheard of in the first 1800 years of Christianity. Craig Coaster, an author of a commentary that we're using in a lecture, notes that for most of Christian history, theological belief was essentially that the future would see the gospel flourish, that the world was going to get better as the church reached out in the love of God and brought the kingdom of God into the world. That was predominantly kind of how people view the world. Uh, and so... Uh, what happened is in the 1800s, things began to change a little bit. Next slide. So in the 1800s, the guy on the left there, we've got this guy, Edward Irving, who's the Scottish clergyman, and he just begins to come up with a whole new theory. Uh, and he saw the church falling away and disintegrating and Christ returning to save a small but faithful remnant. His eyes were picked up then by another preacher called John Nelson Darby, who developed this in his teachings further. Uh, Darby was a British priest who served in the Church of Ireland for a while, but then he got restless and he got interested in biblical prophecy, and for him, biblical prophecy meant biblical prediction. Now, in a second, we're going to unpack about the fact that that's not a great worldview to have in terms of what the Bible teaches about prophecy, but okay. So he began to get, and I can appreciate Darby, because it is quite exciting, you know, you're like, ooh, and he began to put things together. And he formulated the current pattern of thinking that you see in books like the Left Behind series. And his view were like, things are just going to get worse and worse. And Darby took passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, where people had caught up in the air. And for centuries, for 1800 years, people had read that to mean the resurrection of the dead meeting Jesus, meeting the Lord. Um, but Darby said, no, 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 this is something that happened before the end, seven years before the end, so that the last seven years in the Great Tribulation can unfold. So he becomes to come up with these, quite, these new ideas and his, he kind of had these followers and they came together and they formed the Plymouth Brethren Church. Now again, just side note for me, it's really interesting that 
The charismatics who love the Holy Spirit have been most influenced by the theology of someone who did not believe the gifts of the Spirit were for today. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Darby's key teaching in regards to the end times with this. Number one, a secret rapture of the church prior to the return of Christ. Number two, a period of tribulation that would be followed by the return of Christ. Number three, he believed that history could be divided up into uh, separate dispensations of time. Number four, that there's a distinct place for ethnic Israel in the plan of God. And number five, that Jesus would reign for a thousand year reign before the final judgment of all things. This is new in the 1800s. Darby's teaching then eventually crossed over to the Atlantic, over to the States in the 1870s, and they were really well received. Because in the 1860s, the US had lived through the Civil War. Half a million Americans had died in a country whose population was very small at the time compared to what it is today. And in a sense, people weren't feeling very optimistic and this theology really fit the mood. And then old Cyrus Schofield turns up, an American theologian, minister, and writer. He was very drawn to these teachings. And he produced what's known as the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909, which is a King James version of the Bible, with his footnotes explaining what the text meant. It was essentially the very first study Bible. And it was incredibly helpful for people. It was like, oh, this helps us understand the text. But Schofield, uh, who's brilliant in lots of ways, he took Darby's system, which he really got into, and put it at the bottom of his Bible as notes for what Revelation is all about. So the 1900s roll around, and people are reading the Schofield Reference Bible, and they're thinking about Revelation in terms of end times, and the beasts, and the wars, and the famines, etc. And then, of course, World War I hits. And then the Great Depression. And then the Spanish flu. And then World War II. And people were like, we're in the last days. Absolutely convinced. We're in the last days. And they'll take like passages from Revelation, like Revelation 13, verse 13, and which says, And it performed great signs, the beast, performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. And people were like, man, Hitler's the beast. No doubt about it. Uh, he's, in, he's introduced mass bombings. This is definitely the case. Um, and many people in the 1940s saw that World War II was the tribulation. And then the war ended, which spun a few people out, and then peace was introduced and messed with the heads of those who had subscribed to this interpretation. There's a little pattern that'll start forming just by the way. Uh, And so it would have been a good time to probably reassess things in terms of end times and thinking. But then in the middle of the 1900s, things heat up again. The Middle East uh, begins to heat up. There's a need for homeland for the Jewish people, and that's realised. And in 1948, Israel is reformed. Now, so what these guys do is they then jump on a text in Matthew 24. Now, Matthew 24, just like Revelation, is a passage that you should have a bunch of commentaries out if you're reading. It's, there's a lot going on in Revelation 24. But anyway, Jesus says this in verse uh, 32. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you will know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, one interpretation of Jesus' comments in Matthew 24 was that the fig tree blossoming represents the reforming of Israel. And then a generation will not pass away before the fulfillment of the other things that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, the returning of the Son of Man, Jesus. So if you do the maths, a generation, which most people would consider to be 40 years, from 1948, point to one particular date, 1988. Someone should write a book about that. So you've got the reforming of Israel, and then you've got the oil crisis, the communism, Cuban Missile Crisis, Middle of the Eastern Conflicts, the Six-Day War, the Cold War, and publications that's going to overdrive in regards to the end times and the beast and the mark of the beast. And like, just to note, all through this time, grounded New Testament scholars are saying, "Eh, mm, uh, (laughs) I'm not sure about this. But then in 1970, Hal Lindsey blessed the church with this book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And he took the same system of the footnotes from Schofield's Bible and connected those passages with headlines, and it became a runaway bestseller in 1970s. The book was full of beasts and wars and disasters and famine, lots about Russia, a lot about China, a lot about Israel. Uh, and it went on become, to become the best non-fiction seller in the 1970s, not just of Christian publications, but of any publication in 1970, over 9 million copies were sold by 1980, sorry. 
By 1990, 28 million copies had sold. In this book, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Now, I don't even know, I had to Google all these guys. Um, the ten-headed beast was, uh, in the book of Revelation, was the ten heads of the European Union in the middle of the 70s. And they had a computer that was called the Beast. And it was going to be part of the one world government. And, the, and barcodes were just coming out. And that was part of the one world government um, to take over with the Antichrist. Um, and so we've got a couple of years max, you know, is what most people are thinking. And so then you've got this book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. This goes on to sell four and a half million copies. And uh, Amazon reviews for this book are brilliant reading. <laughs> so Christian broadcasting stations in the States, um, they're broadcasting instructions for Christians in regards to how to prepare for the rapture. People are getting into communities. People aren't flying on planes in case their, Christian was, their pilot was a Christian and got raptured. And it seems crazy and we laugh, but parents in the 1960s are wondering if they'd done the right thing in even having children and bringing them into, the, into a world on the verge of nuclear war. These are the parents who had lived through World War II as children and young people. They'd seen some stuff. And so you put a book in their hands about end times like this and the idea of getting zapped away to safety sounds pretty good. I can appreciate that. So anyway, 1988 comes and goes. We get to the 90s, and actually the guy wrote some books after that, <laughs> why it's going to be 1989, 1990, blah, blah. So what's the thing that we've learned? Not that we're reading the book of Revelation wrong, but rather that futurism and scary end times book, books sell really well and tap into our fears that we have. Because like what happened with COVID and with the earthquakes and all these other stuff when this stuff comes, pops out, we have the sense of a lack of control. There are things way bigger than me that are happening right now. How do I make sense of this? So in the mid-1990s, with events focused around Y2K in the year 2000, Tim LaHaye and Jerry um, Jenkins blessed the modern church with their new series, Left Behind, 16 novels in the series, 65 million copies sold, all based on a pessimistic, futuristic, dispensational theory of end times. Three full-length movies and four video games, including Left Behind, Tribulation, Forces. So basically what we've seen over a couple of hundred years is this. One preacher has an idea, another preacher jumps on the idea, another preacher puts it in a study Bible, and then Hal Lindsay, Edgar Wisent, who wrote the 88 book, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Dinkins, next slide, sell over 100 million copies in books and movies promoting these ideas. And listen, it was accepted, this whole view of Revelation was accepted almost without question because it made possible for the average person to understand the complicated book that is Revelation. Ewan McManus says, whoever tells the best story shapes the culture. And thus the rapture left behind the beast Antichrist, the whole book of Revelation is understood, particularly in North America, but also in places like New Zealand and Australia. This sort of view is a bit of a default promoting ideas non-existent for most of Christian history. And so, as you can probably tell, ultimately, I don't think this is what Revelation is about. Craig Keener, in his commentary on Revelation, writes, Many interpreters have simply failed to learn the original setting of the book and have an effect added to it, despite its warning in 22 verse 18, that if anyone adds to them, to these words, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. <laughs> They've added to it by reading into it theological systems not justified by the text itself. So if we are going to make sense of, re of Revelation and rediscover Revelation, we have to understand it in its original setting and context as a genre of literature specific to a particular time and place in history. And we'll get to that in a second. So here's how we're going to do the series. We're going to do this, we're going to explore this series. Uh, and explore this book and look at what it says from a biblical scholarship perspective. I have no interest in coming up with some fresh and novel, interesting ideas about the book of Revelation. That may sell a book series, but I don't think it's helpful to Christians committed to orthodoxy. We are looking for an orthodox, biblical-grounded understanding of this book, and we are here to rediscover the beauty of this book as it was originally intended. Sorry. And as I've done all this work on Revelation in the last year, 
this is grief, these tears. I've just felt grief. I'm like, man, we have missed out so much by engaging with the book in this way. Like, I can't, this series is so rich and beautiful and challenging and pastoral, and it makes sense when you dive into it from a biblical scholarship perspective. It's so life-giving, it's faith-building, it's beautiful. Like, I'm so looking forward to the next seven weeks. Um, But there's been sadness as I've dived into all these commentaries, because I'm like, the church has missed out on so much. The church has missed out on so much. And what happens is this has an impact on people. It feeds fear. It, it, um, it impacts us missionally. If you genuinely think the world's going to get worse and worse, why do we bother missionally doing anything in the community? But when you believe that God is going to return victorious and finish the work and that actually we're called to build the kingdom of God and all revelations filled with all that stuff, then you, oh, let's get out there and, and support the work of Bruce, uh, Bruce and Marley and Andre and Cherie and, and let's get out there in the community and love and serve and bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So as we dive into this book, we're going to take seriously the historical context and it's, it's the, result, the resulting understanding of Revelation is so much more beautiful than the shallow attempts to read it like Nostradamus or a horoscope for end times. It's not a coded newspaper foretelling geopolitical events in the 21st century. It's a glorious revelation of the triumph of Jesus Christ. Jesus' lamb-like kingdom brings a saving alternative to the beast-like empires of the world. Revelation doesn't anticipate the end of God's good creation. It anticipates the end of violent empire. It's a hope-filled book. It's a hope-filled book. Um, Michael Gorman from a a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly says this, "How how one reads, teaches and preaches Revelation can have a powerful impact on one's own and other people's emotional, spiritual and even physical and economic well-being. Therefore, interpreting the book of Revelation is a serious and sacred responsibility not to be entered into lightly. With respect to Revelation, it must be clearly stated that some readings are not only inferior to others, they are in fact unchristian and unhealthy. I sat down with someone who's not in our church, just so you're clear, who were making very big decisions on how they were reading COVID that was very clearly informed by uh, the reading of Revelation. And we had long discussions about this. And I asked them how they came to their views on the book of Revelation. And this person said, I just read it and the Holy Spirit helps me understand it. Now, I, I love the Holy Spirit and I love the Word of God, but this is not a wise way to read the book of Revelation. Uh, this, and, and this is what Ian Paul, again, a New Testament scholar, says. The Scriptures have been given to us with the expectation that God will speak to us through it. Hallelujah. Yes. I read the Bible every day. He speaks through us. And there's certain passages where I'm like, what does it mean that Jesus stepped out of the boat? And I'm like, I can probably work that out without too much help. Hallelujah. When you get into Revelation, someone needs to hold my hand. <laughs> he says this. So it was given primarily to the whole, uh, sorry, the scriptures have been given to us with the expression that God would speak through us. But it was given primarily to the whole people of God. We Western assumptions treat it as though it was given to me and that I should be able to understand it on my own. Revelation 1 verse 3 neatly undermines this assumption by promising blessing to the one who reads and those who listen and keep the words of this prophecy. The social situation here is clearly a communal context with someone reading at the front and the whole community listening and making sense together. We all we get in all kinds of problems when people read Revelation on their own and come up with often bizarre schemes for its interpretation which are untested. So here's how, as I've said, here's how we're going to do it. This series is going to be informed by New Testament scholarship. I think it's crucial we have the humility to let those that have done the serious heavy lifting in the academic world, particularly in terms of understanding context, and we'll talk about that in a second, inform how we interpret this book. Now, you may not agree with where we land, and already some of you will be like, this is all heresy. Fine, no problem. Uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, not everyone agrees with me on every theological point in this church. You're wrong on lots of things. But... <laughs> But here's, we are not into groupthink here at Bay Vineyard, where everyone has to think the same thoughts. I have loved the journey that we've taken over COVID, where we've, for the first time the Western church has been tested, are you unified around Jesus or are you unified around your views on the vaccine or government or whatever? 
And we have, I'm proud of how we've navigated through that. It hasn't been easy, but here we are. So even if you, you don't agree with me on some stuff here, hear me out. So then at least you know what you're disagreeing with, right? At least then you know, oh, no, that's, all just, that's rubbish. Let's hear it out and we can process. Let's just see what it, where it takes us. Ultimately, we are united around the confession of the creeds and we're unified in our love for Jesus. So next slide. Here's the, um, the primary sources that I've been drawing from in my preparation for this. I'm not going to go through them all, but they're, they're full-on nerds. They're all doctors, all specialists in Revelation, apart from David Cam, uh, Campbell at the end there, who only has three degrees in theology, but that's because he's a pastor, so he gets off the hook. We've also So they're the primary sources I'm using as we go through this. The second slide, we've also got some other sources that I've been swimming through there, a bunch of folk on the screen there that you can engage with. But also, I'm really excited about this. I'm drawing from the work from these guys, but also uh, over the next seven weeks, we've got uh, some visiting speakers, Dr. Joseph McCauley, who I've already referenced. The first third of the talk was his, basically. Dr. Sean Dutoy, uh, who's uh, uh, one of New Zealand's finest uh, New Testament scholars and actually writing a commentary on 1 Peter at the moment. And then Martin Day, who's done some brilliant work on Revelation and who's a vineyard pastor in Auckland. So these guys are going to be coming over the next seven weeks to do some uh, some sermons, which is really cool. Now, we need this book. We need to unpack this book today because in the last three years, couple of years, we've gone through Brexit, Black Lives Matter, Trump, Biden, Hong Kong protests, COVID, vaccines, protests again, the Taliban's return to power, ongoing challenge of climate change, the war in Ukraine, and Elon Musk just bought Twitter. Like seriously, ugh, the whole world feels like it's all over the show right now. And this is a book for our times. At times where it's like, what's going on? All of these forces seem so much bigger and there's so much more going on than I can get our heads around. We need God to give us a revelation, to pull back the veil and, and to say, here's what's actually happening in the heavenly realms and this is what this book does. It will challenge us because what this book does is it challenges people that are bowing the knee to empire and saying, rather than the kingdom of God and the church and all that sort of stuff, the only way that we, we can get through this stuff is by bending our knee to government. And, uh, and that manifests itself in two ways. Anyone that's, that's uh, if we've lost hope that the church can bring about the kingdom of God through the power of the Spirit as the body of Christ work together, then our only hope is political process. And so whether you hate the government too much or love the government too much, it's a form of bending the knee. Tim Keller says this, one of the features of our time is that churches are dividing over politics because people are finding themselves more passionate and moved by political and social issues than they are by the truths of our faiths and especially the centrality of the gospel of Christ. They come, become most exercised and emotional, not in worship, but over flashpoint political and cultural issues. That is a sign of a spiritual vacuum in Christians' lives and emptiness. This letter is going to powerfully challenge those of us that have slid into that space. Revelation is both pastoral, it'll comfort us, God is in control, and prophetic, it will challenge you, hey, no, bow the knee to Jesus only, hope in him faith in him. This is where we put our, our faith. David Campbell, in his introduction to his commentary, says this, Revelation is not a handbook to last day's events. It is a pastoral letter written to Christians of every age and generation on how to live lives faithful to God and Christ in the midst of all the challenges a hostile pagan world throws at them. The visions given to John form a prophetic picture of the sovereignty of God working through all the ups and downs of human history. It assures the believers that God is Lord over that history and exhorts them to persevere in obedience in order to inherit an eternal reward that will infinitely compensate for the sufferings they have undergone in this present world due to their faithfulness to him. That's good. So here's the full four tools. So we're going to be informed by New Testament scholarship. Here's the four tools that we're going to use. This is a summary of the book of Revelation from the Bible Project, guys. If you want to use, I'll actually put that on our, um, on our group page so that you can track along with us. Um, so here's the four tools that four tools that we're going to use as we dive into this book. Now, guys, these four tools are the tools that every Christian that wants to have good interpretive methods should use when reading the Bible. So this is not like this is just basic stuff. But again, the church has sometimes not appreciated the academic world the way it probably should. Well, teachers in the apostolic kind of framework are there to strengthen the church. 
So we're grateful for them, we honour them. So here's the full tools that we need to use if we're to read the book of Revelation well. Firstly, it's historical context, hugely important. Revelation is a letter written to particular people in a particular place facing particular situations and issues with a particular message. Listen, it made sense when they heard it. They weren't going, oh, that makes no sense. I'm sure it'll make sense in 2,000 years or 2,500 years. I'm sure they'll be, that's, that clearly must be there. It made sense, complete sense as they heard it, and it spoke to them in their, passage, in their time. It was, the book of Revelation is dripping with imagery and references that are easily recognisable at the time. And it was a letter meant to be read out loud. Uh, uh, letters, like today, uh, or emails, whatever, are situational, personal, and contextual. To understand a letter between two people or groups of people, you need to know a thing or two about what necessitated the sending of the letter in the first place. In other words, you need the context. I could write an email to a mate, and I could, in it I could say, Bob is a pig. He's a big pig. Bob is a big pig. Now, context matters. Is Bob really into Burger King, like Sam? and overeats. Is Bob literally the name for a big pig at a farm? Or is Bob a large policeman? <laughs> Sorry, Kagan. <laughs> when I write that word, I've got a meaning in mind that will be clear to the person that gets that email. They'll understand. So the context of the email, who it is to, when it was written, all that stuff around it matters. Many evangelicals tend to skip over this step and jump straight to application. This is a grave mistake. If we completely detach our modern-day applications from a text's original historic context, we, miss, we risk misapplying the text, sometimes in embarrassing ways. John is writing to the churches of the seven provinces of Asia Minor, and John is writing to people that he was an overseer of. He's thinking to them as he's writing this. He's not writing to the 21st century. He's writing to these people. So our job was to try to get into their mindset to understand the book the way they would have understand it and to assess the symbols the way they would have assessed it. Uh, in this historical context, numbers and symbols mean a whole lot, and we'll talk about that in a second. But there's so much imagery. Can we go to the next slide? There's so much imagery. Um, if I showed this to you, most of you guys will know what I'm talking about here. If I went to the Philippines in the slums of Manila and showed this, they'll be utterly confused. Um, and, uh, and same with this next slide. There's all sorts of imagery that we understand. Uh, in the States, you've got two political parties, donkey and uh, uh, elephant. Again, if I showed this picture or versions of this picture to the original readers of Revelation, they'll be like this. So you've got a talking donkey, you've got a talking elephant. They seem to fight a lot. Red and blue are involved. And they'll try and work out what the heck. does. It, and they, they may put all sorts of interpretations on this that actually we know aren't true. So we're going to get into a whole lot of historical context. Next slide, the genre of the text. The first tool is the historical context. The next tool is the genre of the text. The three genres that Paul uses, there's a hybrid here of three genres. He's using uh, both apocalyptic literature, prophecy, and a letter. So the first is, I've already mentioned, it's a letter to real people in a real church. Uh, they're getting together in a house church, reading roughly 20 to 30 people. One person would read it aloud in one sitting. And they would hear it. It's like a bit like it's not like an orchestral piece meant to be heard in one hit. Now the problem is 2,000 years later, we have to dive in and like analyse a note to understand it. And then we dive in. But they didn't hear it like that. That was like, woof, one big thing. It was like, whoa, that's stunning and beautiful. That's what's going on there. Secondly, Revelation is a prophecy. Now, when most people hear the word prophecy, they think, ah, yes, here we go, predicting the future. Ooh, this is fun stuff. And in verse 1, uh, it says, these are the events that are soon going to take place. Then in verse 3, the time is near. And, uh, and John ends the book by saying, the Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Again, if they had thought that this was about what was going to happen in 2,000, 2,500 years from now, the book would have little meaning for the readers. But it does mean something incredibly profound for the church at the time. It brought real hope. So we have to understand what they mean by near and soon in all these words. Uh, but also when you talk about prophecy, uh, what the Bible predominantly talks about prophecy, it's not predicting the future. Like even when Jesus had a prophetic word for the woman at the well, it was things that had happened in the past in her life. 
but when it comes to prophecy, the Old Testament is where revelation is grounded. And, and prophecy is actually a, normally a word of judgment or salvation given to a particular people at a particular time. Old Testament prophecy is less about protecting the future, but Old Testament prophecy is really saying, look, here is the consequences for not listening to God or your disobedience. Come back to allegiance to Jesus. Repent and come back to him. That's what prophecy normally is about in the Old Testament. And so Old Testament prophecy deals far more then calling people uh, deals far more with calling people to repentance and obedience in the light of God's purposes in history rather than simple prediction of future events. Under enormous pressure, the book of Revelation says, stay faithful to God, stay faithful to the lamb that was slain. No, Caesar is not Lord. The Roman Empire is not the system to look to for change or the equivalent today. Don't get caught up in it, Jesus is Lord. And so as you listen with the humble heart over the next seven weeks, you will be prophetically challenged in your allegiance to Jesus. Lord, let it be. I pray you have soft hearts to hear his, his word of challenge, his prophetic challenge to us. And lastly, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Now this is a whole friggin' style of writing that we are not used to. We love the literal in the West. And a lazy reading will take what is not meant to be taken literally, literally. Um, but to understand apocalyptic literature well, we need people to help us understand the imagery of this genre, what it meant, more than any other book in the Bible. The word apocalypse literally means to disclose something or to reveal. So the word revelation is, is, uh, is translated from the word apocalyptic. We normally think the, uh, the word apocalyptic means disaster. Like me and Luke were both in the loo simultaneously before uh, the service today. It uh, wasn't planned doing number twos, and, and it was, uh, we would say, man, that was a disaster of apocalyptic proportions in there. Uh, you may want to let that place breathe for a bit, uh, which is what I mean, it looked like the end of the world, you know, it's kind of what we mean by that. Um, and so, uh, but that's not what the original meaning of apocalyptic means. It actually means to unveil, to bring revelation. This is not a book about a disastrous end, and it's a book that reveals Jesus Christ, hallelujah. This is what John says, this is what he saw, it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. What we're once hidden, the wisdom of God has been revealed using fantastical imagery, monsters and beasts and dragons and fire, not for its own shape sake, but for, as a way of shaking up the reader to help them see things from a different perspective. It shakes the reader. This is actually what's happening from my perspective. It's vivid metaphor. One of the reasons that John probably used the style is because it's normally used as a subversive style to the powers at the time. We see this in the book of Daniel. In the book of Revelation, a huge chunk of it is actually undermining Rome. And one of the reasons that they spoke with these symbols is that the audiences, the Christian Jewish audiences, understood these symbols, but the Romans couldn't. Yeah, sneaky. So it was a way of communicating their message in a way that if this letter was confiscated by the authorities, they wouldn't be able to understand it and therefore couldn't persecute the people on that basis. And so there we go. And lastly, the Old Testament links. This book is grounded in the Old Testament. There are 405 verses in Revelation and 676 allusions to the Old Testament. Get your heads around that. So in every verse of Revelation, you've got a couple of hat tips to the Old Testament, more than any other book in the Bible. So you cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding the Old Testament from which it's grounded. Scripture interprets itself. The great mistake of much contemporary interpretation is the tendency to interpret Revelation in light of current news reports rather than the Bible itself. This book is drenched in the Old Testament and we need to tap into that dimension to understand what it's saying to help us interpret this book. And lastly, the way that the, the, uh, the use of numbers within Revelation. All the numbers in Revelation are used symbolically. There's numbers everywhere. And again, us Westerners struggle with that. Seven churches Guess what? There were more than seven churches. Oh, that's annoying. You know, it's like, no, that's just wrong. You know, and it's like 144,000. You know, and literally you've got a whole denomination out there that's like, oh, 144,000. The use of numbers is staggering. In the ancient world, for example, seven suggested completeness, seven days of the week, seven seas, seven nine planets. And so when seven churches are spoken to, it's saying this is for the complete Christian church. 
Um, uh, Martin Day, who's speaking at the end of our series, was a mathematician in a former life and gets a lot of joy out of all of this stuff. But, uh, but Richard Borkman and Ian Paul in particular have written books that are really helpful unpacking a whole lot of the stuff. I'm not going to go into all of this, but here, here, this last example, Jesus, the word Jesus occurs, occurs 14 times. Seven is the number of completion. Two is the number of witnesses required in a Jewish court. So 14 is saying Jesus is the perfect faithful witness. It's as clever and as structured as that. Very, very intentional. A total geek fest. If you want to get geeked out on stuff in Revelation, get into the numbers side of things with some academic scholars helping you. Fascinating what's going on there. So we're going to use these tools, all of these tools to help us navigate the book of Revelation. These four tools are going to help us rediscover Revelation. All right, that's my introduction. of my sermon. (laughs) Let's quickly work through a couple of uh, texts, and then, I'm not kidding, Uh, we're going to work through a couple, I told you, pay attention, that was just the intro to the sermon. Uh, We're going to, um, we're going to uh, jump into, as I said, we can only dive into a few things, so I'm going to cover a few little bits of text at the end of Revelation 1, because we've got the time to do it, uh, and then we're going to jump into Revelation 2 next week, and, blah, and on we go. we're not going to, again, work our way through methodically, but the next couple of weeks, we are going to work somewhat our way through Revelation 1 through to 5. Uh, and I'm going to do the first three talks, then we've got some guest speakers for a couple of weeks, and on we go. So verse 3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This immediate, we've got to start here. This book is going to bless you. How good's that? Like, I'm not here to make your life complicated or bring further division to the, this wonderful church, you know. I'm here because I want us to be blessed as we engage with this book. You're blessed as you engage with it. We're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff. Yep, the thousand years stuff, what that's about, the beast, 666 Armageddon. We're going to look at all this stuff. But here's why it's such a blessing, is that for the first five chapters, pretty much, John's just getting a fresh revelation of the glory of Jesus. Like that's a blessing. Like if you want, like if you want the controversial stuff, don't come to church in these couple of weeks because we're just going to talk about Jesus. And then if you want controversial, no, don't, she should come every week. Whatever, don't ignore me. But uh, but what Paul does is he just gets this fresh revelation of Jesus. And and I tell you what, if we need anything. In this time, with all the stuff going on, is the church needs a fresh revelation of Jesus. Like we need to see him again for who he actually is. Because we lose sight of him so quickly when we're swimming in news cycles. We've got to, we're blessed as we engage with this book. Martin Day, who's speaking at the end of our sermon series, says this revelation, revelations lifting the lid change of perspective would have been a game changer for its first readers. They didn't have to feel intimidated by the might of Rome. They knew the true ruler was on their side. This book also should be a game changer for us. It can help us to see the world in a new way. It can help us to see our lives in a new way. And most importantly, it can help us to see that Je- to see Jesus for who he really is. The lion, the lamb that was slain, the Alpha and Omega, the rider on the white horse who is faithful and true, the commander of heaven's hosts and the judge of the world. When we see Jesus more clearly, it will always help us face uh, into life's battles. So true. So John's there on the island of Patmos. Now, we don't know whether, um, next slide, whether, um, oh, I'll actually go to the next slide. Um, we'll come back to that. We don't know, next slide, do, oh, do I have it in there? The one of John writing some stuff on a bit of paper? No, there's a picture of John writing. On the, there we go. So that's what John looked like. This is a photo of him on the island of Patmos. We don't know whether, um, uh, the Gospel of John could have either written, been written by some sort of prophetic leader within the church at the time, or John who wrote the Gospel of John 1, 2, and 3 John, the Apostle John. And I don't have time to go into um, the debate on that. It's not really a major because the content of the book still speaks, but I think it's John the Apostle who wrote John 1, 2, and 3 for some reasons um, Whatever. Okay, so that's my personal, but again, it doesn't really matter. Not worth throwing your lollies about if you disagree with me on that. Whatever. At the end of the day, we know he's an old man. Most of his friends have been killed for their faith. And tradition has that John was tortured, probably that he was dipped in boiling oil as torture for his faith. 
he's scarred up. And he's living in a time where there's, there's this totalitarian, totalitarian empire with an emperor who demands that you call him Lord. So this is like, again, pretty sobering, eh? When it comes to like the cost that we have in New Zealand for our faith or whatever. He's a hardcore guy, man. He's suffered. Can you imagine losing your friends? Imagine going through that sort of torture and then you're punished and isolated by stuck on the island of Patmos. So in verse 9, this takes on a whole other meaning. John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's on there because he did not bow the knee to Caesar he remained faithful and loyal and said, no, I cannot say Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And this, I love this. I'm like, who, this triumphalistic rubbish that's in Christianity that says that we shouldn't suffer and that we should always be prospering and that, you know, the best is yet to come and all that stuff. It's like, hello. No, sometimes we're a companion in a suffering. Some people go through enormous suffering in their life. But this message, so what's, but what do we have in Jesus? Yes, we share in his sufferings, but what we also, patient endurance. Church, we need this now. With COVID and with all the stuff, that we're, the pressure you're in, Jesus is calling you to patient endurance. I need patient endurance. You need patient endurance. Our present experience is suffering. Our yearning is for the future kingdom. Our call is to patient endurance. Listen, this is one of the sevenfold phrases that occurs in Revelation. This is a perfect saying. It doesn't imply a passive kind of waiting, rather it conveys a spirit of courage and victory. And so in this place of Patmos, he gets this vision. Revelation 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And on the midst of the lampstands, I saw the one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash across his chest. And his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. There is so much Old Testament imagery going on here. It's insane. And there's so much critique of pagan cults going on here. It's epic as well. But again, I don't have the time to go in there. But uh, the context here is that in the Old Testament, you'd have these lampstands. You would have seen these probably in Jewish homes or in people, you know, they've got this sort of stuff going on. You'd have these, these lampstands. And the job of the priest in the Old Testament was to tend to these lamps. Priest, you've got one job. <laughs> Keep the light of God burning in this world. Tend the work, put in the oil. And uh, so you've got these seven uh, sort of things there. So then, then John sees Jesus standing amongst these seven lampstands. And these lampstands represent the church. So there's Jesus. And rather than the lampstands being all connected together. Now the lampstands are all over the show. We've got little little lights burning. Like John would have had Jesus' uh, words, let your light shine before men that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' words of let your light shine on a hill. Like he's got all that stuff going on him as he writes, as he sees this stuff and writes it down. Like we are called to be a light in this place and we're called to tend to the light of God shining in this community. And Jesus is standing there amongst these seven churches. This is good comfort news for us all in the midst of all the complexity. Jesus is in our midst, making sure that the light burns. Not the pastor's job, that's Jesus' job, hallelujah. He's doing that. He's standing there, tending to the presence of God, but he's tending to these lamps. Why? Because the church matters to Jesus. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. This taps into this imagery from Daniel 7. He's the ancient of days. He's the God over time. Again, we've got to get our heads around this. Like, you know, people talk about COVID or with earthquakes, or whatever. Like, this is a one in 100 year event. So for us living through it, it's like, man, this is a big deal for our generation. Well, it's a once in a generation event, people will say. Well, if Jesus is the ancient of days, in the last 2,000 years, he's gone through 200 once in a lifetime events. This is not his first rodeo, folks. He's okay. He's not spun out by this stuff. He's the ancient of days. Again, we need to get this vision of Jesus in our hearts and minds. He's the ancient of days. He's been through it all. He's seen it all. Empires come and go and he remains. He's the he's, So again, we, we, know, you know, we see Jesus in the Gospels. Now we see Jesus in his deity. He's been there forever. He's the ancient of days. We need a bigger Jesus. 
And there's all this stuff that uh, that their imagery at the time in these pagan cults. Gold was symbolic of spiritual power in uh, pagan cults. And Jesus is surrounded by golden lampstands. The church is places of power, of life. And Jesus has a gold sash on and on and on and on you could go. But he's just undermining these pagan cults at the time. And then uh, uh, it says, where are we? His, uh, 16. Uh, sorry, verse 14, his eyes were like flames of fire, his, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sounds of many waters. This speaks to power and energy and purity and life. His voice like the, the sound of many waters. I love that. Again, John's just standing there. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is epic, eh? And his face was like the sun shining with full force. So out of his mouth has come the sharp double-edged sword. Again, this is symbolic. People that like beating other people up in wars and stuff. Oh, Jesus. No, the, 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 the sword is symbolic. It's his voice of authority. It's his voice that penetrates and cuts through. It's his voice. Like when he speaks, things shift and things happen. And then his face is like the sun. Please don't try this after the service. But has anyone tried looking at the sun in the middle of the day? Like it'll burn your eyes out. So please don't, right? John's like this. It's like, it's too intense. You can't look at Jesus. Your physical capacity will unravel itself in light of the full revelation of Jesus. Like you just melt you. <laughs> uh, you like, and again, it taps into Moses coming down from the mountain and he gets a glimpse of, of, of God and his face is shining. You meet people like this. They've met God and they just their countenance is radiant. We have this revelation of Jesus and, and, Paul, and John knows uh, that Jesus is a friend of sinners and, and he's gentle. But then John gets this revelation of Jesus and his glories and he can't even look at him, he's undone. And then in verse 17, it's like, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. I mean, this is probably the same John that reclined on the Jesus' chest. This is the John that had probably walked with Jesus more than anyone else, served him to 50, 60 years. He'd sat in, in, the, in the presence of Jesus for 50 years and in devotional rhythms and gained an insight into the heart of God that has blown our minds ever since. John's prologue in his gospel is insane. His theological statements in 1, 2, and 3, John, are just incredible. And we beheld his glory, he'll say in these sort of texts. He knew him as a teenager. He had the most profound understanding theologically of Jesus. And yet when he sees him in his glory, it's like he falls down dead. That's huge. Like, I thought I knew you. Oh, boom. <laughs> and, uh, the charismatic scene there for a while, people would get prey and they'd fall over. The glory of God would meet them. So I faked a lot of it actually, but some people, glory of God would hit them and they'd fall over. And it's like that. It's like we actually, church, we need this revelation. This, like, this is going to do this for us. It's going to open our eyes to who Jesus is again and put in context all of the other fears that we've got and lack of control we've got around what's happening at this time. Uh, and then he placed his right hand on me. Oh, how beautiful is that? Like that's the God of power who just comes and like John's just on the deck because of how insane the holiness and the glory and the power and the beauty are. God doesn't, he's not like, oh, I'm so big. He comes and just hand on the shoulder. And in this, in this moment we get both the omnipotence of God, like his otherness and holiness and the imminence of God, his nearness and closeness to us captured so beautifully, awe-inspiring. Our most pressing need in a time like this is a fresh glimpse of Jesus. This, we're going to land here, crash land here. Let's stand and pray that God would reveal himself to us afresh.